Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we have gathered here that we might meet with you and hear from you. That uh, you would teach us by your word, and what a gift that we have the scriptures, the very words of God, to give our minds and hearts to. And yet, uh, challenging words for us this morning, and we need your spirit to come and bring a light to our hearts and draw us near to you um, that uh, we may know our Lord Jesus more deeply. And so as we uh, study your word this morning, I uh, pray that you would uh, give us both faith and repentance and trust in your goodness. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, this morning, uh, we have a big topic talking about uh, homosexuality. Uh, one of the main passages in the New Testament, one of the few places in the scriptures that address homosexuality. And, uh, of course, this is a timely passage that we just happen to be going through 1 Corinthians. I, I actually planned this sermon series two years ago, and so that we would be about here. Uh, this is about two years ago, and, and here we are. We've had a historic uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, ruling last week. And, um, and, you know, that's not the only reason that this is a timely passage. Actually, more personally for me, uh, this, this past week, my uh, 10-year-old daughter had a great hour-long conversation with one of her closest friends, sweet girl, uh, who was talking about how she certainly is going to have sex before she's married. She's not sure yet whether she's going to marry a boy or a girl. And so, uh, and, you know, Lucy, very courageously said, hey, listen, I'm not coming down on you, but I want to I share with you about what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. And they had a great hour-long conversation. And, uh, and, of course, this girl wanted to talk about it. She wanted someone who was going to talk to her and speak frankly and candidly and lovingly and graciously and listen to her. And that's a question for us as a church. Are we able to have that same conversation as well? And in order to be able to do that, we need to uh, speak candidly about this topic as a church. And here we are in a passage where the Apostle Paul says in these verses I just read, men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Challenging word. Now, I know that some of you, when you read that passage, you saw that the title of the sermon was Homosexuality, and then I read the passage, and there were all kinds of sins listed there. You know, greed, idolatry, uh, you know, a reviler, this abusive person, you know, there's abusive people, and, you know, many people will say, this is the exact problem I have with the church. 
There's a whole list of sins, and then you pick out homosexuality, and we kind of exalt it as this sin that is worse than all the other ones, and that's the one that you talk about. You Christians are always talking about how uh, homosexuals are going to go to hell. And, you know, on the one hand, how do we answer that? Well, on the one hand, I think it's partly true. Paul does list all those sins there, and he lists uh, uh, sexual immorality, which means that in Paul's list, you know, sleeping with your girlfriend is just as serious a matter as homosexuality. But, as for those of you who've been with our, in our church for a long time, you know, over the course of being a pastor for six years, I've given many sermons on money, multiple sermons, usually a couple a year on greed. I've talked extensively about idolatry. Um, and even abuse. This talks about abuse of person or reviler. We've actually talked in, in a number of places about abuse and the seriousness of abuse and the effects of abuse. This is the first sermon we've given on homosexuality. And it's because when we come to a passage in Scripture, we deal with what's in front of us. And of course, this is a huge issue in our culture that it it, it requires so much attention. So we're going to give a whole sermon to this topic um, today. And so, um, and I think it's a Bible, it's a topic that the Bible addresses uh, very uh, clearly. And so I want us to think carefully this morning, how do we think as Christians about homosexuality? And, you know, I'll say at the outset, um, personally, I find that our argument, the arguments of our culture for affirming either same-sex marriage or just a homosexual lifestyle, I find them very compelling. Uh, even as someone who became a Christian as a teenager, and uh, I, I heard the arguments and you say, you know, isn't it fair for two people to have a, a relationship with one another and spend a life together? You know, if I'm, a, if I'm a heterosexual man and I get to have that, isn't it fair that someone else would have that and that we would affirm that and encourage them? Don't we want to celebrate love and relationships? And yet, as someone whose life has been radically transformed by the Bible, and the Bible has said many things that are offensive and strange to me, over and over again, i found that the Bible is filled with truths that are not only just true, but they're beautiful, and they're good, and they're kind. And I found that actually, I think that this is true in this case as well. And so as I've come to the Bible and said, Lord, I don't understand this, teach me. Teach me to understand this. How do you have verses like this in the Bible? How do I think of this in our culture? Um, The Lord has uh, shown me some things that have been helpful for me to embrace the Bible's teaching and to see it as good. And so I know that for all of you, as we gather here and, you know, a whole room of people, I know that all of you are coming from different places. You know, some of you would say, yeah, I believe, I've always believed what the Bible says, the traditional teaching on, uh, of marriage between one man and one woman. I've always believed that. Some of you are saying, I'm really wrestling with this. I'm not sure I believe what the Bible says. I'm not sure I agree with what the Bible says. Some of you are here, and maybe in your own heart and mind and emotions, you're wrestling with homoerotic desire. Maybe no one knows about that. Maybe you've never told anyone. And you're a Christian, you love Jesus, and you're saying, how do I deal with this? What, what, what would people think of me if I talked about this? You're wrestling with those questions. Some of you know people that you love that are gay. They say, how am I supposed to think about this? And so here I am. I'm, I have to answer all those in one sermon. I've got to speak to all these different things. We have to try, though. We have to try to speak to all the situations and see what God word, God's word has to say to us. So let me just invite you, no matter who you are, I want you to invite you to just open your hearts to God's word. Open your hearts to Jesus.
and his truth and to find that um, the words of the good God of the Bible it is this God who's invented, who invented sexuality. We should trust him. And so this morning we're just going to answer three simple questions. First, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Second, what does our culture say about homosexuality? And third, how should our church respond to both? Three important questions. And let me just say, this sermon's going to be a little longer than normal ones, because there's a lot to say on it. So please bear with me and stay with me. And, uh, and so this is uh, the first question we're going to ask is, answer. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And I'm actually, I'm going to try to give a brief survey of the Bible's teaching on this issue. And of course, the place where the Bible starts speaking about sex is in its opening chapters in the creation story. And you'll notice in this verse that I just read to you, it starts in verse 9 by Paul saying, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And you know, Paul, the Bible uses that language of the kingdom of God, and that actually starts right in the very beginning of the Bible when God creates the earth. And the, the image that you get of God is that he's this king, and he says, let there be light. And what is there? There's light. And, you know, let, uh, let there be day and night, and let, you know, let the waters be separated. And what, everything does what the king says. And the whole picture of creation is that it's this kingdom that God is ruling over, and that he orders it and structures it by his word. And when you see that it's ordered and structured by his word, what does the Bible say it is? It's good. It's beautiful. A part of that ordering and structuring is what God's invention of sexuality. And in those early chapters, there's a few things that we learn about the purposes of sex, uh, why God created sex. And, you know, of course, the first reason is God tells humanity to be, be fruitful and multiply, and that sex is, produces life. And, you know, of course, this is a, this beautiful, amazing thing that sex is this this intimate experience, you know, it's almost transcendent experience of ecstasy and pleasure, and yet out of it, like, comes human beings. And, you know, of course, as Christians, we would not say that all sex has to result in a human being. You know, of course, people get married, and they have sex, and for various reasons, they don't have children. That's not the only reason that, uh, that you should have sex. But the Bible does tell us that anyone who's going to enter into a sexual relationship should at least be open to it producing children. That should be an option. You know, G.K. Chesterton said somewhere that it'd be kind of odd. You know, imagine if there was a culture where people made tubes that came out of your esophagus for the food to come out so that you could just eat as much as you wanted and then the food would not go into your stomach and would not nourish you. You'd say, you know, that is odd. You know, you've divorced even the pleasure of food. You don't only eat food in order to nourish your body, but it has a purpose as well. And if you divorce those things, you'd say it's very strange. And that is because the Bible says that normally sexuality should be open to producing more children. Now, I understand that doesn't always happen. But also, that's not the only thing that Genesis, the creation story, tells us about sexuality. It also says one of the reasons God created sex is to change you. Sex changes you. And how do you see that in the Old Testament? You know, in, uh, in the creation story, it says that God saw Adam, and, it, and it said, he said that it was not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper fit for him. Some of you might know that verse. And actually, the word for fit, I'm going to make a helper fit, I'm going to make a woman for the man, is the word opposite. I'm going to make an opposite person for this man. 
And when God created humanity, male and female, they were different. And they reflected to the world different things about, uh, uh, about who God is. And when God brings us into a sexual relationship, he brings us someone who is different than us. And when you're confronted, men and women are different. They're not just different biologically. They're different emotionally. They're different relationally. There's all kinds of different things. And God wants to force us into a relationship where we're faced with our opposite. And through that process, we're going to be transformed and we're going to become more like God's full character through that relationship. And actually, I'll tell you, you know, in, in terms of the question of homosexuality, I, there's a number of, I've, I've heard from a number of women who've been in uh, lesbian relationships, that part of the reason they were in a lesbian relationship is they say, you know, women are just better listeners. And, you know, they're easier to get into a deeper, intimate relationship with because I can con talk and connect with them. And I couldn't do that with men. And what are they saying? I want someone like me. And the difficulty of the opposite sex is something that God actually intends us to face in our marriage. And it is hard, but we are transformed through it. And so that's another purpose that God has in sex. There's a third thing that God intends in sex in the creation story. Is that sex is about renewing the covenant of marriage. So in the end of the creation story, it says that a man shall leave his father and mother. He'll uh, hold fast. To his wife, it's a, it's a language of a covenant relationship where two people are bound together and they became one flesh and they were naked and they were unashamed. And so what sex is meant to do is the sealing of this permanent relationship of marriage. And, uh, and so when sex is removed from the covenant of marriage, it is not functioning properly. Now, I know this is controversial, but in our culture, we are living in a culture that has been trying to liberate sex from the bounds, the, the loss of freedom that comes in marriage. You do lose freedom in marriage. Because love is always a loss of freedom. And so increasingly in our culture, we are removing sex from actually all of these things, all of these purposes that God has for us. And this is, um, in the case of homosexuality, we have to acknowledge that the vision of homosexuality is a rebellion against this vision that the king has for us uh, in his created order, in his good created order. And so for this reason, that's why actually the creation story is not all that God says. God gives us a picture of what sexuality is supposed to be. It's this beautiful picture, you know, of, of two people bound together for life and, um, and they're facing someone who's their opposite and they're tra being transformed through the process and then, and then new life is coming out of it. It's just beautiful. But the Bible goes on, and the Old Testament actually speaks directly about homosexuality. And you know, probably the most famous passage about that is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in, in Genesis 19. Which, in, in the question that we're dealing with in our culture about, about gay marriage and you know, uh, homosexual relationships in the church, it's probably not the best passage to look to, because the issue there was gang rape, right? So Lot had these two angels that he was hosting in his home, and all the men, and actually probably the boys of Gomorrah, had surrounded this house, and they wanted to rape the men that were in there. And so, you know, as Christians, it's probably not the verse for us to go to to speak about homosexuality. A more important one are the two verses in Leviticus 18 and 20. And many of you know these verses, they're, they're, they're now famous. Uh, Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Um, and this is actually, in Leviticus, the only sin that's referred to it as an abomination. It, it's a very, there's very serious restrictions against homosexuality. Now, some of you, if you've studied this at all, if, you know, if you've Googled this question at all, things that will come up is, is that many people will say, there are a lot of laws in Leviticus that we don't follow anymore. You know, for example, you know, it says you shouldn't eat pork or eat shellfish or your clothing shouldn't have two kinds of thread you know, mixed together. We don't follow any of that. So why do you get to throw out all that stuff, but then when it comes to homosexuality, you Christians, you, you know, really drive that home hard? Um, well, that, that's an important question. Um, because people are saying that the Levitical laws were ceremonial laws that have passed away with the coming of Jesus. Well, it's not that simple. Because right between Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 comes Leviticus 19, where Jesus gets his famous uh, commandment, you shall love your neighbors yourself. Are we going to leave that one to Leviticus? And so it's a complicated issue. How do we know which laws in the Old Testament still apply to us? Well, um, it's interesting. Biblical scholars have noted this. In this passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that expression where it says, men who practice homosexuality. One of the words that's used there to describe that, arsenikoitai, um, is a word in the New Testament that's not found in any other ancient literature. Uh, some scholars wonder if actually Paul made this word up. And, and so that's, some people say, well, what's he talking about there about homosexuality? But um, where did he get this word? And what Paul is actually doing is, is a compound word. I know this is a little bit technical. It's important. It's a compound word between two Greek words, arse and koite, which were used in the Greek version of the Old Testament of Leviticus. And they both show up in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. They refer to the, the word for male and bed. And Paul has summarized Leviticus 18 and 20, and he's put them into this one word that summarizes the teaching of Leviticus and is now quoting it in 1 Corinthians 6, saying that Leviticus' sexual norm still applies to Christians now. And so um, this is an important background information as we come to the New Testament, because some of you would say, you know, does Jesus say anything about homosexuality? And, you know, of course, Jesus does not speak directly about homosexuality. He does talk about sexual immorality, the Greek word porneia. And, for example, this is in Mark uh, uh, 7.20. This is what Jesus says. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now if you're going to ask the question, what did Jesus mean by sexual immorality? You have to say, well, Jesus was a first century Jew. And what did first century Jews mean by sexual immorality? They meant Leviticus 18, which actually talks about all kinds of other sins, not just homosexuality, but incest and adultery as well which are also sins that we would uh, still consider to be sinful. And so Jesus, again, maintains the Old Testament ethic of sexuality between one man and a woman in, in, the, in, the, in a marriage covenant. And then we come to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, in this verse here, which reads, 
um, uh, th which reads, uh, um, what does he say? Um, men who practice homosexuality is actually a construct of two Greek words, uh, malakoi and arsenikoitai. And there is a lot of de debate about what do these two words refer to. And uh, the first word, malakoi, is, could refer to a lot of things. It, it can refer to someone who's kind of effeminate, a male who's soft or effeminate. It could re refer to uh, boys. And so some people have said, you know, this might be referring uh, uh, to boys who are being abused, to, to pederasty, that uh, Paul is condemning that. And um, the problem with that is, is then to have boys that are being abused, Paul then saying that they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God would be strange. And for the second word that we just talked about is a clear allusion to Leviticus 18. What that tells us is that what Paul is referring to in these two words is probably both partners in a homosexual act. And so that's why it's translated in this passage instead of as two people, as men who practice homosexuality together. And, um, and what this all tells us, this brief survey of the Bible, is that the Bible gives a consistent, unified message that homosexual practice is severely forbidden by God for his people. It's very clear. And I know that some of you will say, well, you know, how do you know those aren't just a cultural matter? That was a long time. It was 2,000 years ago. Leviticus was written 3,500 years ago. We're in, a, we're in the modern world. Why don't we leave that in the past? And that's a hard question in the Bible as a whole to answer. How do you know what parts of the Bible still apply to us or still are a, a part of uh, the culture of the past? And the way you answer that is when things are repeated in the scriptures across cultures, you know that this is God's norm for his creation. And so when you have the Israelites who are wandering around the wilderness after they've come out of, uh, out of Egypt in the 15th century B.C., and this is forbidden for them, and then you have Christians who are living in Roman Corinth in the first century, this is, this is a different continent, this is different centuries, this is different language, different cultures, and there's a consistent message. And so the Bible is telling us that there's a consistent message that this still applies for us as Christians. So this is what the Bible teaches. Now... As we've answered that, we can now think about the second question. What does our culture say about homosexuality? And uh, I want to tell you, you know, as a pastor, one of my commitments to you is to not simply tell you uh, that the Bible's true, but to also show you that the Bible is also good and beautiful. The vision of life that the Bible has for us is not just true, it's also good and beautiful. And one of the challenges that we have as Christians is that, is that many people in our culture say, it's not just that the Bible's wrong, it's that the Bible is evil. The Bible is hurting people. And we have to answer that question, is that true? Is the Bible hurting people? And so we need to think about the, the, the arguments that are being uh, brought to us as Christians from our culture. And of course, I can't answer all of them in this sermon, so I'm just going to uh, address three of them this morning. What does our culture say? Um, what is stirring up so much anger, so much emotion about this topic in our culture? The first thing our culture says is that my sexual ori orientation is my identity. My sexual orientation is my identity. What do we say about that? Now, this is an important issue because, you know, in our culture, we're taught from a very young age Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. 
Be your own person. Be who you're really meant to be. And so when a community like a church is telling someone, you can't be who you are, there is this repression where that person is being trapped in. And our culture says, you are suffocating who that person really is. And as a result, and, and this, is, this is true, uh, there, there are people growing up in the church facing a severe depression, suicidal, because they're in hiding and they're trying to stuff down these, these deep desires that are inside of them. And our culture says, you better stop repressing these people and holding them down. You're hurting them. And that's a question for us. What do we say as Christians to that? Well, on the one hand, I'll tell you, you know, I was just recently, I was speaking at a men's uh, barbecue thing in another city, and it was at a church. There was probably 150 men there. And I, w- I told my testimony, and I, I talked about our church, and how I'd become a pastor. And um, I was taking questions at the end of it, and there was a, a gentleman who stood up, and he knew I was from Bellingham, and he said, so what is your church doing about the LBG, whatever, you know, up there? And, you know, he got some laughs from the group. And I just thought, this guy has no idea how foolish he is being. There's 150 men here. Chances are there's a handful of them who are facing the question of homoerotic desires. Uh, am I gay? Am, am I Christian? I don't know how to think about this. And he's just stood up in front of all of them and, and mocked this whole issue. And what do you think about the 16-year-old kids that I saw sitting there that have been asking that question? And they're like, well, this is not a church where I'm going to talk about this. This is not a community. I'm definitely not going to that guy to talk about what's going on in my heart and what's going on in my mind. And it's going to be stuffed down and it's going to be hidden. And that is exactly what the evil one wants. He wants these questions hidden in darkness. We cannot be that kind of church. But what is the question then? Do we affirm everything that's in our hearts and every desire that we have that, people, that we can fulfill all of our desires? Is that where you should look for your identity? Is in the fulfillment of all your desires? That is not what makes for a healthy, mature identity. What makes for a healthy, mature identity is that you are loved. And love always makes demands on you. Love is always a loss of freedom. And if we come to the Lord and say, I want to do whatever I want, that is not entering into love. And that's not entering into human flourishing. And you'll see how Paul tells the Corinthians to view their identity. If we shouldn't view our identity as in, in terms of my sexual desires, how should I view my identity as a Christian? And this is what Paul says to them in verse 11. But such were some of you, but you were washed. What is my identity as a Christian? I'm a sinner. I'm a lost person who's been washed. Jesus has come and cleansed me of all the sinful things I've ever done, every sinful desire and thought, and he's washed me. And he says, you were sanctified. The Bible says that that the Lord takes us and sets us apart for his special purposes and gives us gifts and gives us his spirit so that we can serve him. And he gives us a holy life so that we can love other people. And he says, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean to be justified? It means you've been declared righteous in God's sight. No matter who you are, you can say, I am a profound sinner who has been loved and embraced by God and now serves him in the world and been sent out to serve him in the world. This is a far more beautiful, profound, 
challenging, rich, mature identity, then I get to follow whatever desires I have. This is the identity of a Christian. And I'll just tell you, if you base your identity on self-fulfillment, your identity is about you alone. There's no relationship there. It's about me fulfilling my desires. But when my identity is built on the Lord, I have a relationship at the center of my identity, someone who loves me, someone who provides for me, someone who knows me, and someone who cares for me. And, you know, it's very ironic because God, why did God give us one of the reasons for sexuality? As he looked at man, he says it's not good for him to be alone. And sex is one of the things that answers the question of loneliness in our life. But what happens is when we use sex in a way that God did not intend, it makes us more lonely. And some of you actually know that from experience. That you have sought to answer the, the hollowness of loneliness through sexual immorality, and you found that it has made you more and more lonely. And it's because it only answers the question of our loneliness when it's used in the way that God has intended for us. Okay? So first of all, our culture says, my identity is my sexual orientation. And we as Christians, we can't embrace that. Our identity is in Christ. The thec- second thing is that our culture says, my sex is not my gender. My sex is not my gender. So we say that, you know, a person, you, I, someone could have male organs, but... On the inside, they're feminine, or I'm a girl on the inside. Who I really am, my self-awareness, or my, the role that I play in society is as, as a female. And so, one of the things we have to ask as a Christian, how do we answer that as Christians? Well, what this is, this um, divide between the body, my organs, my biology, and my gender, which you could maybe say is my soul, my inner life, my sense of self-awareness. To divide those two things, the body and the soul, is actually a, a Greek way of thinking. That's how the Greeks thought. They said our bodies were these cages that we have a soul in and we're trying to let our soul get free from our bodies. And so often Greeks would either say your body's kind of this dirty thing and, uh, and you should either have this strict asceticism and not do what your body says or you should just indulge your body and your body doesn't matter so you can fulfill all of your desires. And what Christians said, Christians and Jews from the Old Testament said, your body is not dirty. Your body is the image of God. Your body, you are a physical representation of the the beautiful creator of all things. And to divorce your soul from your body is to do a fracturing of the human person. And so actually, you know, many people who've experienced traumatic sexual abuse in their lives will say that they have experience of talking about their body as that kind of dirty thing over there and I'm kind of over here and I'm trying to get away from my body and it's like this other thing and we as a culture are encouraging that division and when we come to know the Lord he takes our soul and body and he unites them and he reconciles them, and he makes them whole, and he reconciles me to to my body. And actually, the New Testament is filled with language of the body where, where Paul talks about we present our bodies to the Lord as instruments of righteousness for his service and to love others. Our, our bodies become the way that we love and serve other people. And so we cannot divide our soul from our body because what is the separation of the soul from the body? What is that? What do we call that? 
We call it death. When my soul leaves my body, that is death, and it is a huge violence to the human person. We should be pursuing the reconciliation of the soul and body and not the division as well. So we just simply can't embrace that as Christians and say that that promotes human flourishing and, and, and maturity and life. The last thing that our culture says that I'm going to address is that modern sexuality has progressed from the Bible. We are living in a new world. I, men- I mentioned this earlier. And um, you know, this, of course, comes from a faulty understanding of history. We believe that history is progressing from darkness into light, from ignorance into enlightenment. And so if you're just further along in history, then whatever you're doing is kind of, that's got to be the right thing. And so people say, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, right? You know, there were a bunch of people in the civil rights movement, and they didn't get it that, you know, that all races were equal, and you don't want to be one of those idiots that didn't get it back then, and you're going to be one of those idiots now. Now, we have to ask the question, is that true? that history is moving from darkness to light. Well, I'll just tell you one example. Uh, in, the, in the end of the 19th century, many Westerners thought because of the developments of medicine and science that we were going to rid the world of poverty, of, um, of hunger, of sickness. We were going to figure it out, and we were going to make the world a utopia. I mean, people actually thought that about 150 years ago. And then 20 years later, there was a devastating world war that just ripped the Western world apart. And we all of a sudden realized we are not getting from bad to good. We are on an up and down trajectory. And we cannot necessarily say just because history has moved along that whatever we're saying right now is the right thing. And the thing about you know, racial equality, you look through the Bible, it's on like every page of the Bible that God loves all the nations and that the reason he chose Israel was to bless all the families of the earth and he wants all the races in their own tongues and in their own cultures to come and worship him and he just celebrates it and you can find it on every page of the Bible. The Bible speaks six times about homosexuality and it, it gives a clear message. It doesn't put us on that trajectory. And so as hard as that is, that's not an argument as Christians that we should feel embarrassed to say, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. We have to think more carefully about that. And so this leads to the last question we're going to ask, answer. We've looked at what the Bible says about homosexuality, what our culture says about homosexuality. The last thing we're going to talk about is how should our church respond to both. And the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And that, that's what God is calling us as a church, to be marked by grace and truth. So first, I want to say that we as a church must have a commitment to truth. Our lives are not our own. We are stewards of God's truth. He has brought us in. He is our teacher. And so we have to be committed to God's truth. And I think that that means a few things for us. One hard truth for us as a congregation, that means that a practicing homosexual could not be a member of this church. When you become a member of of Christ's church, this is one of the vows that you take. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? 
And so if someone says, I want to be a follower of Christ, there is a commitment to holiness, and sexual holiness is a part of that commitment. Now, alongside that, though, as a church, that's one thing for someone to become a member of our church. Statistics say that for someone to become a Christian, in our culture, it generally takes about two years. From when they first meet a Christian or first hear about the gospel, that whole process of thinking through it, asking questions, testing out Christians, do I really trust them, do I, and breaking down old beliefs, that takes about two years. So if we're a church where someone who's gay or a gay couple wanted to come in and learn about Jesus, we should expect that they're going to be a part of our community for two years before they make a decision to stop that lifestyle. Gay couple comes into our church. Maybe there's gay people here. Maybe you're gay here and you're with us now. How are they going to be treated? I think gay couple comes in holding hands with their arms around each other, come in, sit down, hear the gospel. You are going to be greeted. You're going to be treated with dignity. You're going to be befriended. You're going to be invited into our homes. You're going to be invited into our home groups. We're going to want to hear your story and know you and love you and build relationships with you. We, want to, we know there's so much more to you than this one, one topic. We want to know all about it. And we know that it takes time for you to think about what does the Bible teach? That's going to take some time. And we're willing to give that time. But we just understand that what being a Christian means is that now I'm going to submit to God's word. And that's going to mean not just my sexuality, but my money, my relationships, my job, my thought life. Every part of my life is going to be transformed by Jesus. And before someone wants to sign up for that, that's going to take time. And so we got to ask a question as a church, what is going to be the spirit when hopefully all kinds of people from our community are entering this community? Are we going to warmly welcome them and yet also speak the truth? Okay? The second thing about the truth, I do believe as Christians, we should be opposed to the state endorsing same-sex marriage. And some of you might say, well, isn't that obvious? You just gave a whole sermon about why the Bible says homosexuality is wrong. I don't think it's obvious at all. Actually, many, uh, many Christians my age, many pastors, and actually I've thought a lot about this, have said, well, you know, it's, this isn't our country. We're, you know, and if 63% of the country says they support same-sex marriage, then let's just let everyone be equal. And I think there's some, there's some truth to that, where um, on the one hand as Christians, we have to understand that cultures do not change. Or in our view of how a culture is transformed, it is not from top-down power. And we have come from a generation of Christians who have desired to get into a position of power so that they can legislate cultural transformation. We don't believe that cultures change that way. Cultures change through the preaching of the gospel. And through people believing the gospel and the gospel um, transforming the people. And that's how we should believe. We don't want to impose what we believe on people who are different than us. The Bible, we just looked at 1 Corinthians 5. It says we have no business judging those who are outside of the church. But if someone is going to ask us, what is your definition of marriage? Our definition of marriage is shaped by the scriptures. And we say, we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. We can't redefine it. It's not our invention. It's God's invention. And so here we are again, living in this tension of truth and grace. I also want to say that as we think about a commitment to truth, 
Each of us need to think about living our convictions in this culture. This is going to face us probably as a church. We need to be prepared. This part of the reason it's good that we're talking about this right now. We need to be resolved beforehand. What do we believe about this matter? I know that many of you are thinking about uh, in your work life, how this affects your work life. Maybe you have a friend who's having a gay wedding, and am I going to attend that? And I think that's a very... Let, let me just say two things about that particular question. First of all, attending a wedding is a participation in the wedding. That's why weddings are public. Is because we're saying to the community, we can't do this marriage on our own. We need you to be a part of it and be involved in it. We need you to be witnesses. We need you to hold us to these vows. And so I do think as Christians, there's a real question, how can we participate in that if we don't acknowledge same-sex marriage? I also want to say as a church, I know there's many diverse things situations that you're in that I don't even know about. We need to be gracious to one another as we're working these things out. Okay? So we need to be gracious and careful about how we talk about these things because these are very hard issues where there's dear loved ones that are in our lives that we're thinking through. And so we need to support and pray for one another and be patient for one another. But we do need to ask the question beforehand, what is our resolve and what is our conviction? And each of you as individuals must think through those questions, okay? So as a church, we are committed to the truth. But Jesus also, Jesus came not only committed to truth, but committed to grace. And I want to say a few things about what does that mean for us as a church to be committed to grace. And of course, it's amazing in this passage, verse 11 again, where Paul says to these Corinthians, and such were some of you. There were practicing men who had been practicing homosexuals that were members of the Corinthian church. And, um, and that mentality should shape how we think as a congregation. And so the first thing that I think that this means, that as we take a biblical posi- position of sexuality and marriage, the first thing that we should be committed to is that we should be slow to assume that we understand. We say all kinds of things about homosexuality we just blurt them out, and we know nothing about people's lives. And um, if you get into a conversation with a Christian or a non-Christian about homosexuality, the first thing we need to do is listen. Uh, Proverbs says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. It is folly, it is foolishness and shameful to just start giving answers to people's lives when you haven't listened to anything. And actually, you know, some of you know Francis Schaeffer is the, the uh, great theologian of the 20th century, and he said that if he had an hour with anyone to talk to them about the gospel, he would say, I would listen to them for 55 minutes, and then I would talk for five minutes. Because I actually don't know what to say. I don't even know how to speak to this person unless I've heard about their life or what's happening, and then I can speak the gospel to their hearts. And that's where we need to start, is we need to listen. And of course, there's questions about, you know, why does someone facing same-sex attraction? Don't assume you know why that's an issue in their life. Did they have a distant father? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't think that's true with everyone. Possibly. You've got to listen and find out. Um, did they make a choice at some point in their life? Was it just something they, they were taught and they were, you know, they were in middle school and high school and they learned you just make a decision? Um, 
What, what has brought them into that you need to listen and to find out? And that's the beginning of creating a culture of grace in our community is that we're committed to listening before we speak. Second thing, the way we have a commitment to grace in our church is we have compassion for those facing these temptations. This teaching that we've just heard about homosexuality from the Bible means for some people, if they say, well, you know, if it's a gay man, he says, well, I, I couldn't be married to a woman. This means that that person, Jesus is calling them to a life of celibacy. And we should not just be throwing that around like that's some kind of light thing. That could be a tremendous trial for someone. And of course, as Christians, that's not out of the cards. We know that God calls people to, to trials in their lives. He brings trials in their lives. And, and that, that's not a reason to not trust Jesus or to follow, the, follow God's word. But we should have a deep compassion for that. And I'll just tell you, for someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction, one of the best things for them to help them walk that life is to have intimate, non-sexual friendships with people of the, of the same sex. Actually, uh, both sexes. Deep friendships and relationships is the, is the healthiest thing to help them um, push through those, those temptations and those trials. And that's, as a church, we have to be committed. Hugging, embracing, telling people that we love them, and not being afraid that, oh, am I going to tempt them if I, tell, if I tell a man that I love him and I give him a hug? No, you are helping him. And so we need to be committed to that compassion that we walk with one another and our lives are open to each other. And the last thing is that we as a church should know that Jesus sets us free from sin. And I, I love this passage that Paul says that we're washed. In Jesus. I know that many of you have sexual histories. Maybe they're, you've never told anyone about. That are painful and that are difficult, that maybe feel shameful, that feel confusing. In Jesus, you are washed. You are clean. You are embraced. You are brought near. You are known. All of the things that we're longing for in sex are ultimately given to us in God. Sex is just a pointer. It's just an arrow showing us the deeper union with Jesus himself. That we look forward to the day when he comes and he brings his kingdom. And so as a church, we pray that for ourselves and for anyone that comes in these walls, that they would find the deep love of Jesus here. And we as a church need to be praying that that would be so. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word that speaks to every area of our lives. I pray for every individual here that I know there's many different thoughts going through the minds sitting in this room. I pray for your Holy 